Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show. It's on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 222. It's titled, Why We Overpay and How It Increases Income Inequality. If you go on Amazon.com, you can buy a 12-pack of 12-ounce cans of Coca-Cola for $4.68. Or you could go to Walmart and buy Sam's Cola, a 12-pack, for $2.68. $2 more for Coke. Is that $2 of advertising that Coca-Cola does? There's an article in Investopedia where they estimate that Coca-Cola spent 7% of revenue on advertising. So the $2 can't just be advertising. What is it? Coke's cost can't be higher in terms of producing the product. It's just sugar water. How can they charge $2 more than Sam's? Why do we overpay for Coca-Cola? I read a fascinating book Monday. I'm not done yet, but I I still want to talk about it. It's by Jared de Geest. He is a Belgian legal scholar and writer. He specializes in contract law. Law and Economics and Comparative Law. The book is titled, Rents, How Marketing Causes Inequality. Rent is an economic term. We're not talking about like rent for houses, but we're talking about rent defined as an overpayment, an artificial artificial profit that shouldn't exist in a perfectly competitive market. He writes, in a perfect market, profits tend to be low, as there are, by definition, no rents. Therefore, profits can be increased by making markets less perfect. He's suggesting that Coca-Cola is it's an imperfect market. Otherwise, Coke wouldn't be able to charge $2 more than Sam's Cola. He goes on, rents are, in a sense, the distributional side effects of market distortions. They are the extra income that some people receive because of market distortions. They make some people wealthier, those who receive them, and others poorer, those who overpay for goods and services. The more distorted markets are, the more distributional side effects they generate, and the more income inequality 
is created. So overpayment leads to income inequality because there are those that receive the overpayment and they typically then have above average income versus those who overpaid are going to have less income, hence income inequality. Here's another example. So when I take when I get a headache, I take ibuprofen. Generally, I take Advil as opposed to a generic brand. Jeese points out that doctors and pharmacists, when they've been asked, they generally take generic, which means for some reason I have overpaid when I decide to buy Advil. Why, why, why do I? Well, partly it's due to what's known as information rents. The fact that I'm not really sure if the generic will be as good as the premium brand. Could be the same for Coke. What if Sam's Cola doesn't taste as good as Coke? What if I don't want to risk that? Or what if there isn't really any way to compare? I have no, when I'm in the aisle, I don't know. There's no test or, or sort of comparison. All I have is the price. And then I have to judge as to whether I think Advil is better than the generic brand. This is known as information rents. There's some informational asymmetry. The makers of Advil, they know whether their product is better than the generic version. I'm sure there's studies out there. But there's also the placebo effect. The fact that I take Advil, maybe that helps my head feel better just because I think Advil's better. But because of this informational or information rents, Advil is able to get way more for their little bottle than the brand at Walgreens. Another aspect of rents is Amazon Prime. I pay a premium, not a premium, I just pay whatever they charge now. $100, is it $129 now? And that has a lock-in effect. When I buy something online, because I know that I can get shipping for free, I'll buy from Amazon. Maybe even pay a little more recognizing just the convenience. So in a sense, Amazon is also, maybe I'm overpaying for the product, but because I've already had this sunk cost of the Amazon Prime membership, they, they get artificial profits or excess profits because of that. Loyalty cards are the same way. I'm a member of Starwood Marriott. I guess it's called Marriott Rewards now. I'm platinum for life, which means when I go to book a hotel, I'll generally go to a Marriott brand. And maybe because of that, they're able to charge more. I have paid more. I know I pay more. At times, 
because I get the points, but there's some other things I also get. The ability to stay, check in early, check out at 4 p.m. There's always the care to maybe I'll get upgraded. But there are, there are definitely some lock-in effects. And G says, these are market distortions, that they shouldn't be there. Here's what he writes. All marketing techniques that create market failures must, at their core, be based on subtle forms of fraud, abuse of trust, monopolization, corruption, duress, cartelization, undue influence, or conflict, contract breach. Subtle enough to fall through the cracks of the legal system. So the story of growing income inequality is the story of a failing legal system. I don't know if I agree with that. I don't think it, I don't think it's that simple. I've not gotten to the point of the part of the book where he talks about legal remedies. I know his solution is this these are problems this problems of artificial profits. Overpayment can be addressed legally as opposed to solving income inequality through taxation and redistribution. Now, one aspect of this, and he talks about that in marketing books, in the early days, how do you price a product? Well, the simplest way would be cost plus pricing. What does it make cost me as a producer to make the product or to, to get it, buy it wholesale. And then I add a little bit of profit on top of that. That was sort of the, the, the beginning of pricing. But there's another type of pricing that is far more common. It's called value-based pricing, which is based on how much does the consumer value the product? And as businesses, we want to capture as much of that value as possible. So costs are irrelevant. Geist writes, value-based pricing is startling because it runs squarely against one of the fundamental features of competitive markets. Value, in principle, is irrelevant to the price of a product. Clean water is cheaper than wine, not because it's less valuable, but because it's cheaper to produce. A car is cheaper than a helicopter, not because it is less valuable, but because a car is cheaper to make. Laptops have become cheaper over time, not because they have become less useful, but because production costs have decreased. The only markets in which value is decisive for pricing are those that are insufficiently competitive. Monopolist and oligopolist can capture part of the value of the products they sell, but these are supposed to be the exceptions, not the rule, if we read Economics 101 books. In sufficiently competitive markets, the price is determined by the cost, so that the good old cost-plus-market method makes sense. But most of the time, it's value-based pricing. What can the seller get, irrespective of cost? 
But why do we pay them? Why do we overpay? Sometimes there's a monopoly in the sense of it starts out as a competitive market, but then once you're locked in, it becomes a monopoly. I have an HP Color LaserJet 3600 printer. I bought it eight or 10 years ago. It's desperately in need of new ink. I haven't bought any because when I go on Amazon, because I'm locked in with Amazon Prime, I see that toner cartridges for this printer are $178 each. I need black, blue, red, and yellow. $800 for printer cartridges. I look at the listing, three and a half stars, 68 customer reviews. It says in the description, original HP toner cartridges produces an average of 71% more usable pages than non-HP cartridges. And I'll get about 6,000 pages printed. I guess for each cartridge, but $800. My other option is some company called LD. Laser Tone, I can buy one for $40. It says it fits it. it. Says they're backed by 100% satisfaction and lifetime guarantee. It says if I buy this remanufactured cartridge, it does not void my printer warranty. I assume my printer's no longer under warranty. But they also say that it yields 6,000 pages. Now, who do I believe? HP says, don't trust the, the non-HP brands. You won't get as much pages. The other option, instead of paying $800 for toner cartridges, is to buy a brand new HP LaserJet printer. $400. Their toner cartridges and the new printers only produce 2,300 pages. So, I don't know what to do. Clearly, most of HP, HP earns significant profits on toner cartridges. They're, I mean, they're not anywhere near, their costs are anywhere close to $200 per cartridge. But I have to decide whether I want to buy another printer or not. And Gis points out that in a competitive market because the toner cartridges are locked in that the printer price should be very very cheap if not negative hp ought to be paying me giving me money along with the printer and then they can charge two hundred dollars per toner cartridge but we don't do that because again we have these information rents if i buy a cheap printer and don't spend very much, is it because it's poor quality? Or because they're offering it at a discounted price because I've locked in to this printer toner monopoly? Before we look at why else we overpay, let me share some words from this week's sponsors. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. 
But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a top-rated, all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. There's another view of marketing that's more favorable, that the reason why we overpay for things is not because it's a subtle form of manipulation, of abuse of trust, or we've got tricked into it. It's a view put forth by Seth Godin. He is one of the most influential marketers, writers, at least for me personally. He's got a new book coming out in November. It's titled, This is Marketing. You can't be seen until you learn to see. And Seth said, this is from a, a class I took from him. And it's, it's on this idea of value pricing or value-based pricing. He says, what you charge is tied up inextricably to the story you are telling, who you are telling it to, and the story they are going to tell themselves once they see how much you're charging. And what you're charging shouldn't necessarily be related to cost. If you match to the cost of materials, you're ignoring what motivates people to buy. An example he gave was of a necklace. You know, a necklace is not merely buying pieces of metal and stone to put on our bodies. It's paying for an object that helps them. The buyer reinforce the story that they tell about themselves. One of the phrases Godin 
repeats over and over again is people like us do things like this. And he says, marketers tell stories, stories that resonate. Let's think about Coca-Cola. They've been around for over 130 years. There was an article recently in Ad Age, and it reviewed year by year, what were the taglines that Coca-Cola used? The first one was in 1886, delicious and refreshing. 1906, the great national temperage beverage. Probably the first tagline from Coke that I remember was the one that came out in 1969. They must have kept it a few years because I, I don't remember it then, but it's, it's the real thing. But it's the tagline in 2016 that captures for me why I would be willing to pay or am willing to pay an extra $2 for a 12-pack of Coke. Now, I don't drink Coke on a regular basis. Sometimes I'll, I'll drink a Diet Coke, and there's a reason for it. But here was the tagline in 2016. Taste the feeling. I am willing to pay more for Coke because of the feelings it reminds me of. It reminds me, and I thought about this the other day, even before I decided to do this episode, I, was, I had a sip of Coke, and, and it brought back a memory. It, it felt as I tasted it, like I was again sitting at my grandpa's table. And I would look out the window, I would have a glass of Coke in front of me. My grandpa would be on one side, my dad would be on the other side of the table, small table in their kitchen. I would look out the window at the traffic light that was a half block away. There was radio tower that would flash. Usually it was night. And I would drink a Coke and they would they would have a conversation. This was the same table that with my Coke, I opened up a birthday present, a baseball glove. Another occasion, I opened my first watch at that table. When I drink Coke, it reminds me of that feeling of my Little League baseball game being over with. Drinking the Coke was the best part of the game because I was not a very good player. I didn't really enjoy it, but I enjoyed the feeling afterwards of drinking the Coke. That is why I'm willing to pay more. It's that feeling. It's that story. The memory. I take Advil. I'm willing to take Advil, not because I know that it's better, but I actually like how smooth the capsule is and how it tastes. And again, maybe it has the placebo effect. Seth Godin says, sales is marketing with feet. It's marketing in the flesh. We, the, sales per, the purpose of the salesperson is to help the buyer overcome the fear that they face so they can move forward. The fear of being wrong, of making a change. We often pay more because we don't want to be wrong. I'm tempted to pay $200 for a toner printer because I know how long the printer lasts. I've had that toner printers in that printer Three years? I don't know if it will. I'll probably go with the $40 one just to at least buy one and check it out, see how it works. But when we buy, there's some tension there. We're afraid of, of being wrong, of making a change. We fear falling behind, missing out. At the same time, we have all these stories going in our head. Our, our, 
our journey. We want products that reinforce the story we're telling ourselves. One of my favorite stories from Seth is he was consulting to the little childhood camp, summer camp that he would go to, and the camp was failing. Just they were they were they weren't making enough money. And he, he wanted to support the camp, so he provided some marketing help. And the first thing he did was he tripled the price. Not because they had a lot more cost. They tripled the price so that they would attract buyers that tell themselves, we are the kind of family that send our children to this high-priced high camp. It's the value that they feel. It's, it's the stories we tell ourselves. Now, as consumers, we have a number of things that we need to do. We have to acknowledge the story we're telling ourselves. Why are we willing to, to buy more? At least think about some of these stories. How does, why does, what is it about this product that resonates with us, that they're willing to pay more versus the generic version? And, and I'm, I'm terrible when it comes to grocery shopping because I'll pay more. I mean, I'll look at the ingredients. If I'm trying to decide between tomato sauce, I'll look at the ingredients and I'll generally pay the, high, the, the, the most expensive one. Probably because I, the story is I want the best ingredients and I equate price to better ingredients. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's the story. We also, the second thing we need to do is know what the prices are and how they're set. Example in the in Garrett Gista's book is, is roofers. In our, our town in Idaho where we live, we had a pretty severe hailstorm this past April. And one-third of the roofs in our towns was damaged. It's, it is, needs to be replaced. So you have all these roofers, local ones, non-local coming in. And you would think it would be a very, very competitive market. But it's not because when you go get a bid, you only get maybe two or three bids. The insurance company is pretty much paying for it. So it is not a perfectly competitive market. The bidders, the roof, the roofers are bidding. They're not bidding against the other 500 roofers. They're only bidding against the two or three other roofers. So it's not perfectly competitive. There's what Geist calls some fog. There, the, the, the pricing fog. You're not, you, you don't really get a good sense of what things cost. You, and the other thing is, maybe if you go with the cheaper bid, maybe the quality isn't good. So you always have that doubt. Again, you have information rent. The roofer themselves know how good they are, but the buyer, we don't know. In my case, I didn't have to get a roof. I actually got a bid, not a bid. I had a roofer come look at it. I have a membrane roof. It's flat. So you don't need a roof. He says, go buy some silicon and use a putty knife and put it over the holes. That's what we did. My neighbor got a bid for $11,000. That's what the insurance company is willing to pay. And he decided he just would do it himself and and keep the money. So we have to know what the prices are, how they're set, and get as accurate pricing as we can. And we have to recognize some of the, the marketing ploys that are out there. Price discrimination, search cost-based price discrimination. 
some stores charge more to consumers who are insufficiently familiar with the market prices. Coupons are like that. The savvy people sometimes get coupons. Or the idea of price matching. Best Buy and other stores will price match. We will honor, if you can find this cheaper somewhere else, we'll honor that price. Now, the idea is, as a consumer, we think, okay, well, if they're offering that guarantee, then they must have low prices. We have peace of mind that they're going to have the best price. But the reality is very few people will look and will take advantage of that price guarantee, which means those stores can actually charge higher prices because of the peace of mind. And because even if somebody finds it lower somewhere else, they they expend the time and the cost to, to find it cheaper and then bring it in, most people can't be bothered. And the people that, obviously the people that brought it up, they got the lower price, but everybody else still paid the higher price. Finally, as consumers, I think we need to be aware of the social and environmental cost of the things we buy. And that story that we tell ourselves is, is that story that we're telling ourselves, is, that worth, is it worth that, that environmental cost? There was a story in Vox written by Shavi Lieber and she mentioned how Burberry, the British luxury brand, had $3.6 billion in revenue last year. And in their annual report, they, re- they sh- share that they destroyed $36.8 million worth of its own merchandise. Destroyed it. Burnt it. It was part of the strategy to preserve a reputation of exclusivity. The same article mentioned that H&M has burned 60 tons of new and unsold clothes since 2013. In May 2018, Richmond, they own the jewelry and watch brands Cartier and some others, they admitted in an effort to keep its products out of hands of unauthorized sellers, that they had destroyed $563 million worth of watches over the past two years. These exclusive brands are often burning their merchandise. Now, they say they're capturing their en- the energy, so it's more environmental, but it cost, they expended way more energy to produce those products, and they do it to maintain the exclusivity. Are are those the kind of companies that we want to buy from? When you think about the carbon emission from the burning and that 60% of the fiber market is is polyester, so it's coming from oil, so we're we're effectively taking oil, converting it to clothes, and burning the clothes. That's crazy. Why can't they be donated? The author interviewed a gentleman by the name of Timo Rasanen. He's a professor at the Parsons School of Design. And she asked him, well, again, why can't these clothes be donated? And his reply was, historically, a lot of the donations have gone to Africa, Latin America, South America, it's just some countries in Asia. But the last couple of years, a number of African countries like Kenya, Uganda, have banned the importation 
of secondhand clothing from the West because it suppresses their own textile and apparel industry because they can't compete with a volume of very low priced and secondhand goods. There's just too many, there's just too much clothes made, period. The average American buys 68 pieces of clothes per year. There is a huge excess. And so as consumers, we, we need to be aware of that. Buy from makers that you know where the product came from and what you're paying for. Rasanen says, this is where we get to the thing that nobody wants to talk about. The retail price of a luxury product has nothing to do with its actual value, which we've talked about in this episode. When you buy something from Chanel or Gucci and you pay full retail, that money is actually paying for the massive advertising campaigns. If Chanel destroys a dress, it tried to sell for $1,200. It hasn't really lost $1,200. I don't think Chanel even paid $100 to make that dress. And the money they lose would probably just be recouped through fragrances. So we need to be aware, need to be aware of that. If you buy, what's interesting about the luxury clothes market, if you buy from makers that are, it's higher quality goods, but they're making it in smaller lot sizes, they're not making huge profits. It just costs money to make clothes well and to source high quality and if not sustainable fabrics. But the, the, the luxury brands that you see in Vogue, it's completely different. It's not luxury goods anymore. The luxury story, the goods themselves can be very, very cheaply made. I'm hopeful if, as, as, as we are, are more aware of what we're paying, why we're paying it, where the money is going, that I recognize that, that some companies, they, yeah, they're making excess profits. They're making rents. And owners often get those higher profits. And that can lead to some income inequality. And we're not, I, don't, I don't know how to solve, I can solve that in this episode. But it's just not, it, it's just not a legal situation. It's ourselves, the stories we tell ourselves and the fears that we have and the purchases we make to overcome the fears or because we're fearful or because of the story we tell ourselves. We need to tell ourselves better stories so that we make better buying decisions. That's episode 222. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free Insider's Guide. I'll send you a weekly email with the links in that week's episode, along with other valuable content. Writing I do each week about the episode, about an earlier episode, about something unrelated to the episode at all, something on investing in the economy that I only share with Insider's Guide members in that free weekly email. So please sign up at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation, not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.